Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. My author today is Ashley, and I'm going to have to check on the pronunciation of your middle name, Collagian? Collagian Blunt. Collagi or Collagian? Collagian, three syllables. Collagian. Collagian. Blunt, interesting. It's Armenian. Uh, Really? Yeah. Absolutely fascinating. So, basically... um, there is a dark and sinister underworld of behaviour that is given oxygen through the internet. The malevolent ends to which that is used is evident in Ashley College in Blunt's novel, Dark Mode. So, Ashley, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Now, let's begin where one would with such a dark novel, with a dismembered corpse. This is our opening, uh, and it's actually um, a sort of what would you call it, trademark, hallmark, of a particular type of psychopath, and it was based on a true murder. What was it? So the Black Dahlia murder uh, is infamous in the United States. It's still technically unsolved, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it's maintained uh, this sort of cultural legacy for so many years. It's been over 70 years now. Uh, But the Black Dahlia, she was a a woman from the United States from the Midwest. Uh, Elizabeth Short was her name. She went to Hollywood to, you know, seek fame and fortune as an actor. But really more, she actually was looking for a husband and wanted to, you know, be a mom and have a family because it was the 1940s. Like, that's what women did. Uh, But unfortunately, she crossed paths with someone who had uh, different intentions and she ended up murdered and uh, her body was found the morning of January 15th, 1947, bisected at the waist and purposefully posed uh, in a neighbourhood, in a suburban neighbourhood. And there was this thought of uh, the murderer, the psychopath, trying to emulate a work of art or something like that. Exactly. So there's a theory that's been put forward by a uh, L.A. homicide detective who believes that his actual father committed the case. And I get into this in the book. I get into, I bring in all these true details from the Black Dahlia murder. But his dad was friends with uh, the surrealist uh, painter and photographer Man Ray. And he believes that this murder was about the art. But it begs the question of the mindset of people that would commit such a murder in such a grotesque way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. The, the narcissism inherent in that act. Yes, indeed. But look, uh, on, a, on a more trivial note, Black Dahlia has allowed you to bring together some rather dangerous plants. Uh, we have things like the trailing Christmas cactus, uh, the ghost orchid, the gimpy, gimpy shrub. Now, you must have had a lot of fun with these plants and what they can do to people. Oh, I had so much fun researching the dark side of plants. I, I had no idea. My mum works for a gardening company, and so in summers when I was growing up, you know, I'd go along with her to the nurseries and count packets of seeds that we were returning at the end of the season. And I always thought of flowers as, like, cheerful and happy and, you know, marigolds and cosmos and daisies. But no, plants have a real dark side. And things like strangler figs, like, you know, you look at a strangler fig when you're on the walk in the bush and like you're witnessing a slow motion murder. <laughs> well, you've brought this to good effect in the novel because this leads us then to our main protagonist, Regan Carson, who actually owns 
well, would we call it a flower shop? A gardening centre. A gardening centre called Voodoo Lily. Yeah. What a lovely name. <laughs> but now, Reagan is somewhat paranoid and there is a reason for that. She is. And the reason she runs a garden center is that she relates much more to plants. She's much more comfortable with her relationship with plants than she is with people. She has some trust issues because she's had some difficulties uh, in her relationships in the past that have really scarred her and left her very, uh, very uncertain, very wary. But there's a particular relationship or, well, in fact, a when she and her, a friend of hers got onto the internet, yes. which has led to some of these problems. Yes. The biggest problem in her young life uh, resulted from her doing, I think what a lot of, you know, what yeah. a lot of us do when we're, when we're young is we get online and we talk to strangers. And for some of us, that goes fine. And for other people, it does not. But it also begs the question of how we use the internet and whether we are uh, responsible for what then follows. This is one of the challenges. Yes, because really interestingly, when I was writing this book, one of the things that happens is, is Reagan has some problems online and she does go to the police. As a young woman, she goes to the police and she asks for help. And this is in the early 2000s. And the police tell her, um, well, you'll just have to stay off the internet. And one of the guys in my writer's group, when he read that, he said, well, that's completely unrealistic. Like the police wouldn't say that to someone. And I said, actually, that's taken from dozens of real cases where that's exactly what the police said. But what can the police do? They are not equipped necessarily, well, weren't in the past. And still not as much today as we would hope that they are. Yeah, it's it's very, very challenging for the police to address online crime. But even in domestic violence cases mm -hmm. as well, you know, they, they sort of have to take a step back. What right have they? to interfere, uh, they can only do something when a crime has been committed, and if it's on the internet, does it actually exist? <laughs> yes, that's a big challenge. So this has therefore scarred uh, Regan, but unfortunately, Regan actually does need the internet. Yes, well this is the thing, is as she gets older, you know, the book progresses, uh, the book the main story takes place in 2017 and one of the reasons I said it in that year is because that was sort of that was the last year that my husband went from having one of those clunky old cell phones where if you wanted to text like each each key you know was three letters uh to then he upgraded to a smartphone and I think that was was a shift where sort of that was the year we really got online all the time like if you didn't have a smartphone by then you got one and you know she Reagan gets her business online because she's got this business she's really passionate about it but she's not good at business and and she's financially not succeeding mm. and basically yes a business needs a presence online you do not exist if you don't so we are basically required mm -hmm. to be online and even her bank is forcing her they're like you know use our banking app yes yeah and so all of this has to go through that system. But at the same time, that system can be corrupted, as we have seen. Uh, dare I mention the word Optus uh, and, and such like. So this really does create a modern day problem for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. But here we go now. Because in the past, we had the Black Dahlia Killer, an individual, an act in isolation virtually, but there's something that the internet allows you to do, which is come together as a group. So if you're a marginalised group, you can actually find similar voices online. And now this is the challenge that uh, Regan faces. She's worried that someone from the past is out to get her, but it's not necessarily the case. 
And it becomes very clear early in the book. There's messages that are being sent through a dark web uh, website, and it becomes clear that the the killer is communicating with at least one other person. And so we get this sense that there's something bigger going on than just a single murderer acting in isolation. But you can be traced, you can be tracked, you can be followed. Even, I mean... (laughs) To step out of the book for a minute, I, if I go to the supermarket and buy something and use the, the rewards card or, or whatever, they can actually trace what I'm purchasing and dovetail uh, advertising that, to come to my computer. Oh, more than that. In the grocery store, they're, they're tracking your phone's location to see exactly where you move through the grocery store. Yeah. So they know like well, if you go to the dairy section first and how long you spend there, for example. So are we independent? Can we ever have independence again? Yeah. Well, I, I, this is one of the things that I raise in the book is that is that is that challenge of we are forced to use this system, and, and a lot of good comes from it as well. And I, you know, I'm certainly not anti-technology, but uh, for some people, particularly, it's incredibly dangerous to be on the internet. But now we have. Regan being victimised. And this raises a whole other issue. And I'm wondering just how much you can tell us about the reasons why she is being has been chosen, victimised, and what happens. Well, she in the past was communicating with someone. And that actually, as an online experience, was wonderful. She had this, she developed this relationship with someone who she, you know, believed to be a certain person. When that relationship uh, moved into the real world, though, uh, it was not the same, and it caused some problems for her. So now, in, in her present as an adult, she believes that this person is back because she started to receive messages online that she believes are, are coming from this person. But there's this sort of issue of, well, is it this person or is it is it just some random that has decided to attack me simply for being on the internet? And that's a question that she can't she can't answer because she doesn't have enough information. And it's a fact of the internet that, you know, a lot of people are just randomly targeted by people who want to take their their negative feelings out on others. Well, there is a particular group with particular negative feelings, and we've seen these groups, uh, types of groups. I mean, people, in fact, putting their crimes and, and airing it live and such like. So I'm just wondering how much you can tell us about the group that has chosen to pick on Regan. Well, there's the book is drawn from a lot of research into what's known as the Manosphere, which is these various men's rights activist groups, so such as incels, such as MGTOW, which are men going their own way, pickup artists. And these, these, you know, these are very active groups online. They have ideologies. They have even recruitment policies in some cases. And the way they look at women, FOIDs. Yes. Yes. So the term FOID uh, is used in the book, and that's drawn from some real research. Uh, men use it to refer to, uh, it's shorthand for female humanoids, which is a way of, of dehumanizing women. Yeah. And it's dangerous, but it's normalized because this group has come together. So they're all feeding off each other mm-hmm. in many ways. Uh, so it, it almost, uh, they justify each other which is very, very dangerous about what the internet can do in this regard. They create that echo chamber and they create their own propaganda. And what's interesting is my first book was about the Armenian genocide and its connections, its historical connections to Australia. And I wasn't looking for connections between what's happening today in the manosphere and genocide, but that use of terminology to dehumanize a group 
to make it easier for people to then uh, attack them is 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 an interesting connection between between genocide tactics and the manosphere. Now. Regan is able to turn the tables a little. She steals some computers, but can she actually give stolen computers to the police um, to basically expose this person? She uh-huh. can, in fact. And one of the delights of researching this book was I got to sit down with an ex-cop who offered to actually read the manuscript for me. And so he walked me through what, you know, like this would happen, this wouldn't happen. And I made a bunch of edits based on, on his feedback, which was such a delight. But yes, there's there are ways that, uh, obviously the police can't illegally take evidence, but if a citizen acquires evidence in an illegal way, that can be uh, used in the courts. Ah, so the tables are turned. And a little. The killer is actually caught. Meanwhile, by the way, Regan's been trying to establish a relationship uh, n- normally and, and uh, with Bryce, who's been helping her out and such. The uh, killer is caught after a lot of investigation, but then there's a twist. Oh, there's in, always a twist. <laughs> in the end of the story. And in some ways, it speaks to where these people are lurking. Yes. And would you care to perhaps talk a little about uh, where these people are, where you'd find them, uh, who they are? Well, I think we have an image in society of, you know, internet trolls as as disaffected, you know, probably teenage boys or young men uh, who live in their parents' basement or their attic and aren't aren't connected to society and i really wanted to show that that's you know not the standard but they could be the person next to you which is the frightening thing exactly they are basically hiding in plain sight yes they can be anywhere which is another frightening dimension to your novel so what happens to regan who is the copycat killer who's been uh re-imaging the black dahlia what can plants do uh and how can they make your life unbearable who is responsible for the murders? What happens to this uh, group of marginalised men on the dark web? Well, the listener is going to have to read Dark Mode by Ashley Collagian Blunt. And it's a release by Ultimo Press. So, Ashley, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you for your fabulous questions, David. And now we are going to try and get into Jan's pre-record. Here goes. Let's see what happens. The Gaps is the title of Leanne Hall's latest book. And there was quite a gap between this book and her last seven years. I can understand why the topics in her latest book are complex. There is a terrible crime, but it's the flow-on effects the crime has on the victim's friends that make this such a riveting read. Welcome back to Published or Not, Leanne. Thanks so much, Jan. It's lovely to be here. Well, let's jump right in. Chloe is in year 10 and doing an art project. She researches Bill Henson's photography. Can you read from 207, please, Leanne? When I crack the first book open, the one that covers Henson's earlier work, I'm flooded with excitement. The paper is thick and glossy, The image is shadowy, deep, inviting. 
I turned pages through hazy ballet classes, haughty schoolgirls in straw hats, a lone house in the woods, downturned faces in the street, a little girl wearing her mother's pearls, an erect nipple, ruined buildings, dilapidated glamour, petrol stations, burning houses, city lights. My mind settles into the same flowing hum as it does when I jog. I move on to the next book and the next. Beautiful dishevelled young people, bare skin, sexy angles, tangled limbs, wet mouths, drunken abandon, muddy smears, floating. They look like adults one moment and teenagers the next, ecstatic in one shot, miserable in others. Troubled or hedonistic, it's hard to tell. I'd be happy if I could take one photo that matters and here are hundreds. It's this portrayal of women in art and media. We get this little snapshot of a woman, but we don't really know the woman. Is this one of the reasons you called the book The Gaps? So this this gap between perhaps the real woman or the real experience of, of being a woman and the representations that we see of women and especially young women around us, that wasn't at the forefront of my mind, but because of my process, I fully accept that as kind of a meaning of the title because I think oh, there's a lot of meanings that can be applied and are accurate. Yes. Well, as I said, Chloe's only a year 10 student. She's at a new school. How is she fitting in? Quite poorly, at least in her opinion. Chloe is new to Balmoral Ladies College. She's painfully aware that she is a scholarship student, so she doesn't come from a wealthy background like many of the girls at the school. And she's also, I guess, like culturally or, or racially, like a little bit uncertain of where she fits in. She's Chinese Australian, she's biracial, born in Australia and raised here, yet she looks very Asian. And within the school, there is a kind of divide between international students and Australian-born students. So she really for all of those reasons, feels that she is not fitting in particularly well. In year 10, there is also Natalia. How is she different to Chloe? She's almost like the the direct polar opposite. I mean, I think this is how I often design my characters. I'm quite fond of two-handers, like dual narratives, and I'm quite fond of exploring close friendships and relationships between two protagonists. I always design my characters to be at two extremes, So Natalia has been at Balmoral Ladies College since junior school. You know, she's white, blonde, pretty. She's got a little clique of friends gathered around her. She kind of rules over the the year level in a kind of reign of terror of sorts that that popular girls sometimes do hold those kind of um, powers. But she also has her own struggles and I'm kind of at pains in the narrative to, to show that the glossy outside the perfect student, the the classic mean girl, often below the surface of that can hide an enormous amount of turmoil and, and struggle. Or another gap. So exactly. Natalie, yeah, true. So Natalie and Chloe, as you say, have the dual narrative or they share the telling of the story and it's Yin Mitchell. So what's happened to Yin? Uh, it's no spoiler to say because it happens right on the very first page of the book, but Yin Mitchell is an, another Year 10 student at the school and in the first page of the book it becomes apparent that she has been abducted from her own home. The book unfolds as a counting of days since she's been missing and isn't returned and kind of charts all the different ways that both Chloe and Natalia and 
the wider school community, including the teachers and the parents, react to this really distressing and terrifying event happening within the school community? There's an anonymous texting about what to do if you're abducted because she's not the first girl to be abducted from the school. And there's an online cold crime research exposing a lot of other girls where investigations were not as thorough. Another gap. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I'm quite fascinated with that recent thing of there being online communities of amateur sleuths and what social media and the internet has done to our ability to both track down and disseminate information about things that disturb us and worry us. Uh, The school, of course, is going into looking after the students with counselling and also a self-defence course. But Natalia... How does she react to having to do self-defence? Natalia reacts in a few ways. I mean, she initially reacts quite poorly at the sense that they should be required to do a self-defence class. Her initial response when they're they're pulled into the school gym is, is to put up her hand and say, why do we have to learn to defend ourselves? Maybe men should have classes about not assaulting and killing us. So she's clearly like twigged on something quite, I guess, quite sophisticated that maybe a lot of adults might not pick up on that is that young women are being required to be responsible for their own safety in ways that that are quite unfair. It's a type of of putting responsibility on victims or, or the vulnerable. But I will say after she makes that comment, Natalia does throw herself pretty enthusiastically into the self-defense class, much to the detriment of one of her classmates, you know, and somebody says to her, you know, why are you so angry, Natalia? Because she has been quite aggressive in her self-defense class. And I think that question that she answers is really, really demonstrating the the source of her anger. She's a, a deeply angry young woman at that point in the story. Year 10, you can understand why one of the books for this year level is taken off the reading list. That book was Picnic at Hanging Rock, where (laughs) those women disappeared. But why is it the advertising for a very popular crime series causing questioning and stress amongst the girls? There is a new crime series that has just dropped on a streaming service called Devil Creek. The girls are all avidly watching it, which is quite an interesting thing to do, given that it is about the murder of a young woman and they are experiencing something very similar in their own real lives. So why would you seek out a program like that when you're already traumatised by an all too real crime? But I guess me putting that in the in the gaps was really a part of me reckoning with my own decision to tell a crime narrative. So I'm a very enthusiastic consumer of crime fiction and television crime dramas. And I have a really uneasy relationship with my enjoyment of those types of narratives because I do understand that sometimes the way that we tell crime stories especially about the vulnerable and marginalized in our communities can be quite sensationalist it's sometimes a guilty pleasure I sometimes feel quite ethically ambiguous about it so I wanted to draw that in into the book I had a lot of questions about how to sensitively tell this story in the gaps myself and I wanted to also put that type of ethical ambiguity up front and centre in a few different ways in the book. And Devil Creek was one of the ways and also one of the common ways you see young women portrayed merely as dead bodies and victims in in our cultural products. Chloe, she has an idea of her own artwork and thinks that she could make somebody look seductive in death, a lost princess 
or a dreaming virgin or a bad girl getting what she deserves. All of the contradictory things that somehow get heaped on young women. And another quote which I really liked, if women hold up half the sky, then why are they so disposable? The women holding up half the sky is, is a very famous um, quote. I think it's Mao Zedong. And it was used actually in an art book that I came across that was championing Chinese women's art. And I really wanted to draw into that quote and bring it into the book and, and kind of weave it in with some of the ideas that I was exploring in the gap. So it's funny, you know, that quote was really important to me. I often write important quotes and put them in post-it notes around my desk near my computer, just like as touchstones to remember what I'm trying to do in a novel. And I, I just thought it was my quote that I found interesting, but it's it's amazing how many readers have actually pulled out that quote from the book and replicated it as as saying something to them. So that that pleases me quite a lot. Going from art and photography to sex, 16-year-olds, it's quite confronting to older readers but probably truthful and doesn't seem to be any gap between the social groupings of Chloe and, and the Natalia's friends. There's honesty there. How about giving us a lighter read from page 99? Okay, I'm glad you've asked about this because I haven't actually really been asked about or talked about anything relating to to the sex in the in the book. And it's it's funny, I'll read this out, but it's one thing when you, I realised I never choose to read out the sex bits. You know, it's one thing when you write it alone in your own house at your desk and then another thing to read it out loud. But anyway, here we go. Grace Chapman hovers nearby, cradling a stack of books. She always has her head in a book, usually a novel featuring a supernatural love triangle. Although, in a change of scenery, I accidentally saw her with her head in Andrew Taylor's crotch behind the pool house last Friday night, which is a bit weird because it was her birthday party. So whose head should have been in whose lap, I ask you? Well, I certainly enjoyed that bit. I thought it was yeah. quite humorous. So how do these 16-year-olds fit in with their family? You know, you scratch the surface a bit and you realise they don't have a standard nuclear family. Yeah, so Chloe is being raised by a single mum with with her and her brother. And Natala, I guess, has what from the outside appears to be a very, you know, successful, aspirational wealthy family with two parents still married and and an older sister that she calls on for advice. But I guess there's a lot of struggles between all the families. And maybe because I'm getting a little bit older, I also paid quite a lot of attention to the parents' point of view, even though it was always through the teenage girl's eyes. But the, the parents aren't perfect. Like the parents are just muddling their way through somehow. They don't really know what to do either. When Yin Mitchell goes missing, they're scrambling. And what is the best way that they can support their daughters when this terrible thing happens? So teenagers are sort of in a phase of their life where they are getting added to independence, but they still are very much shackled to their teachers, their school the adults. And so I wanted to show realistically that they're still living at home with their families who have mm. a great amount of control and influence over them, but they still have to be free enough to kind of push the plot forward and act themselves as protagonists without adults overseeing them too much. So I was consciously very trying to make the parents very present and to make their relationships quite fraught as well. They are, especially as both fathers have police records and are being investigated. We started with photographic art and there is an art prize being offered at the school. 
Chloe could certainly do with the money, but what happens to her artwork? So Chloe works really, really hard on her artwork and when it is displayed, she gets lots of mixed reactions from the students. All the students and teachers mill by, they have a big kind of cocktail evening event and one of the other students is quite upset at Chloe's artwork, which is kind of a a mixed media photographic work that does use Natalia as a model and depicts a very ambiguous scene that could be of a young girl sleeping or a young girl that has been the victim of a crime or it's got quite a dreamy fairy tale aesthetic as well to it. So this student feels very upset because she believes that it references Yin Mitchell and she finds it very insensitive. And so she complains to a teacher and Chloe's artwork is withdrawn from the exhibition, which is both devastating to her, but also to to Natalia, who regards herself a bit as a co-creator in in the work. The two girls have worked quite hard and formed a new friendship around the production of this artwork. And so they're both quite upset when it's it's withdrawn. What are the flow and effects on classmates when a year 10 student is abducted and how are the stresses dealt with by family and especially the girls who question their role in society. The Gaps is winner of the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Young Adults and is written by Leanne Hall. Thank you and congratulations Leanne Hall. Thank you so much Jan, it's lovely to chat to you again.